every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. The administration of elections is primarily a state and local responsibility. Whether you voted for the very first time or waited in line for a very long time, by the way, we have to fix that. Welcome to High Turnout Wide Margins. This is Brianna Lennon. I'm the county clerk in Boone County, and with me is my co-host. Eric Fay, Director of Elections in St. Louis County, Missouri. And we are incredibly excited today to have Matt Masterson on the show during his two-week vacation before you start at Stanford. We're really happy to have you on. As we always do, we want to start out by asking how you got into elections. I know you started at the EAC, really, moved to state and then went back to the EAC. So can you kind of give an overview of how you your trajectory has gone? Sure. And I, I love that you guys always ask the elections origin story because it's always uh, fascinating to hear uh, how folks get into this. And, and mine uh, actually starts with a person familiar uh, to, to Eric as well. And, and Brianna, I'm sure you as well. I started as a legal intern to then EAC chairman, Paul DiGregorio. So I got out of law school, headed to Washington, D.C. and worked for Paul became his special assistant and then eventually went over and, and worked as the deputy director of the testing and certification program uh, at the EAC. So I got to get my hands dirty working on the VVSG, working on testing and certified voting systems, understanding the, the technology. And then in 2011, I went home to Ohio and worked in the secretary of state's office, uh, starting as uh, deputy elections director under Matt Damschroeder, who's uh, someone I learned the nuts and bolts of elections from, uh, as well as, as Keith Cunningham, who was there at the time, and then became the chief information officer in the Secretary of State's office, which was an incredible learning experience for me, and eventually the deputy chief of staff and chief of staff. And then I got a call one day uh, asking if I would be open to being a commissioner uh, at the AC from then Speaker Boehner's office. So went through that process, which was insane and something I never thought I'd do became a commissioner at the EAC. I was chairman of the EAC in 2017, so following the 2016 election, which meant I got to work on uh, sort of the creation of the critical infrastructure designation with uh, CISA and DHS at the time. And so then in 2018, when I wasn't reappointed to the EAC, Director Krebs called me up and asked if I'd be willing to make the jump over to CISA because of the work we had done. So I moved over to CISA to lead the election security work there from 2018 until just leaving in, in December of 2020. So I've had a wild ride. I've been fortunate, as the election community does, to have folks be willing to educate me on how the process works. Uh, my local officials in Ohio love to point out that I've never actually run an election working at the state level and the federal level, which is totally true and right. It's absolutely true. But folks have always been, and I think it's a hallmark of, of the election community, have always been willing to sit down, educate me on how things actually work so that I could do the best I can to support state and local election officials. Man, I definitely want to ask you a couple of questions about EAC stuff. I know you haven't been there for a while, but sure. before we do that, one point I made with Tammy Patrick on the podcast we did with her uh, was that I think she's a great interpreter between the USPS and election officials. Agreed. And I thought, and I still think, you are a wonderful interpreter between the intelligence community and folks in the federal government and election officials. And I'm curious if you could share with us and whoever's listening, what that was like when you went over to CISA and started to explain to them how elections work. And I just wonder if you had any insight on that. 
Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate the question and, and the compliment. I, I certainly tried uh, very hard to serve in that role. And uh, actually, that started uh, really in August of 2016. So when I was a commissioner at the EAC and the evidence began to arise of Russian interference in the 2016 election in, in August of 2016, got a call from DHS and, and the lead over there, Neil Jenkins, saying, hey, can you come over and meet with us and explain to us about election systems, voting systems, items like that, uh, so we can understand sort of what's going on. And, and at that point, I didn't have a clearance. I don't know that anything would have been shared. So it was sort of this amalgamous request of, hey, we come in. So it was, it was myself, a couple of EAC reps, as well as NASED reps, sitting down with not just DHS, but representatives from the National Security Council, the FBI, and others to basically talk elections and what was scheduled for about an hour long meeting to have a conversation about how some of this works lasted for about three hours. And it was literally a conversation starting from the very beginning of how elections are run, how the systems work, how do the systems share data, understanding that an election night reporting system isn't the same as the voting system, which isn't the same as the electronic poll book. I mean, uh, many in the room at that time thought that all of the voting systems were internet voting systems. And so really working to understand, no, that's not how this works. Let's talk about, and, and my, my running joke from that point forward was every time you asked me a question about how elections were run as a, as a federal government question, the answer is it depends, right? There, there isn't a good answer. There's, there's 8,000 different ways that elections are really run. And so I, from that point forward, I worked really hard. I, my colleagues at the EAC at the time worked very hard. And I know the folks at DHS worked hard to really understand the individual needs of the states and how they run elections. And so what was going to work for the state of Texas wasn't what was going to work for the state of Florida for any number of reasons. And how do we best support them? And so you're right. I mean, I spent a lot of my time both at EAC and then certainly at CISA translating and, and discussing uh, election security. And, and maybe the best example of that is some of the risk assessment work that we put out that really we worked very hard at CISA to recognize where the risks lie based on how elections are actually administered and discuss that in a way that was understandable both to the election community so that we could have a risk discussion, but also to the, the cybersecurity community that was working to support the state and local officials. So many a conversation with my, my federal partners about how elections were run. And, and to their enormous credit, they recognized they didn't know and really were willing to dig deep into uh, understanding the nuts and bolts of election administration to, to best support state and local officials. Do you think, is that built in now to DHS? Do they have some understanding? They do, yeah. So certainly the, the election security initiative group led by Jeff Hale, it really has a good understanding. They also have subject matter experts that are continuing to work with DHS. So folks like Noah Prates and, and Matt Crane and Jennifer Morell and Ryan Macias all digging in. So one of the keys for for CISA is going to be that ongoing relationship with election expertise, both talking to state and locals directly and having folks who have run elections advising them. And then the folks in the field, right? So we've got, CISA's got people in all 50 states that have engaged with state and local officials, gone and done protective security reviews or penetration tests or things like that, maintaining those relationships because the field's going to change, right? The systems use are going to change. And so staying up to date and understanding. I think it's built in at CISA. I think the understanding for now built in across the federal government, but it's going to take an ongoing commitment to really understand that. Staying on the security angle for a little bit, we talked with Ben Hovland on a previous podcast, and I asked him a lot about VVSG and where we are with that, so on and so forth. How important, if at all, is it that 
we have an updated version of VVSG in terms of security of, of the voting system kind of writ large. It, you, you know much better than me about what is in there and what could be in there. Is it going to make a difference as to how secure our voting system is? Yeah, yeah, I think it's extraordinarily important and was a priority for me when I was at uh, the EAC. Having up-to-date standards, but, but perhaps more importantly, having a process that supports nimble response to the community and innovations in the community in this environment is going to be immensely important as we look at the security challenges around the voting system uh, and supporting things like risk-limiting audits, supporting greater transparency of data around the, the systems. If we've learned nothing else, and I think we've learned a lot from this election cycle, it's this ongoing need to embrace both auditing of the process and transparent auditing of the process. And the systems have to be able to support that for that to take place, right? And improving the security requirements, you can't just update the security requirements once and call them updated, right? That has That's an ongoing need. There has to be a feedback loop. Uh, so as CISA, as other entities are out doing penetration testing, uh, assessments and election offices, how does that information get back into the standard setting process? And, and then is the standard setting process nimble enough to respond and take that feedback in and, and adjust the evaluation of the systems? Same goes for accessibility, right? We, we can't continue to have requirements for accessibility, usability that date back to, to 2005 when, when every other industry has progressed far beyond that in supporting that. We need a nimbleness in the process of feedback loop. Really what we need is, is both the security and the accessibility usability design elements to take place as the systems are being developed, uh, as opposed to just being tacked on uh, to pass a certain standard, right? So I think, and I know we worked very hard when I was at the EAC in, in building a set of standards that can be nimble and responsive. You don't want certification to be the reason that, that we have outdated or unsupported software, for instance, right? A certification process should incentivize patching of systems, not limit patching of systems. And so how do we how do we build that into the process and support that, encourage it? Things like bug bounty programs or open-ended vulnerability testing, those are all going to expose changes to systems that need to take place. And if the certification process can't keep pace uh, with that, it's failing the community that needs it the most. So it's it's critically important, but perhaps more important than the actual standards is the program built around it that can support the kind of dynamic nature of the systems at this point. And, and it, it's wonky. I don't know if the others have talked about having a common data format, allowing these systems, voter reg, e-poll books, voting system, ballot delivery systems, all able to exchange data in a seamless way. And then making that data usable and available is really important. So I hope that gets done, gets incorporated into the VVSG and into the systems to promote that as well. Yeah, you've been an evangelist for the common data format. Yeah. It's the nerdiest of all election topics, but it's so critically important because there's just so much that could be done if we had it. And I, I know, and, and I know you all know, many of your colleagues uh, and my peers purchased systems thinking that they'd be able to communicate together and they don't. And you've had to come up with workarounds or pay for the translations that, that otherwise uh, should be taking place in these systems. So it, it's, I believe really strongly in it. Do you think as we're moving towards adoption of being more nimble and having more common data and, you know, kind of standardizing things across the board. Do you think that's going to drive down any of the costs that we have? I mean, we're looking at 
we laid out a million dollars to make our replacement and we're a mid-sized county. Thankfully, we had the money to come up with that. But there's plenty of places that are taking out loans to do that or just unable completely to replace what they have until they get federal grant money. Yeah, yeah. And I think so. I hope so. I'm, I'm optimistic on that front. If for no other reason, then we're continuing to see innovation by election officials in a number of counties in how they deploy and administer the elections to both provide greater options for voters, but also to limit the systems or, or the technology that may be needed that, that's driving up the cost, right? So we've seen use of commercial off-the-shelf scanners, which are both uh, more afford or can be at times more affordable or, you know, replaceable, more easily replaceable use of tablets and things like that. And so I think industry will respond to what the customers demand. There's always going to be a demand, I think, from the election community for a monolithic system that a county can just place out there and use because there isn't, as you all know, many of your colleagues have little to no IT support, little to no resourcing. And so that ability to deploy that one system and put it out there is needed. But I think for a lot of counties, as they've embraced the security conversation, invested in resourcing, that nimbleness and flexibility is going to lead to changes in the marketplace and, and how they respond. And we're seeing that already uh, in jurisdictions with the deployment of some of these systems. And so I, I think I think that's what you're going to see. I, I it's hard to make an argument that deploying a voting system that you know it can't be and, and through no fault of the vendor, by the way, can't be upgraded or patched or supported anymore. That's 15 years old in this environment is is healthy. That's that's not a healthy environment. Uh, we need to to really tackle what's causing that, and how we solve that problem. And in the end, by the way, that the key that's that's being adopted by counties and states across the country is is what's in the VBSG known as software independence for all of us known as auditability, right? Uh, if we can embrace auditability, it's going to, I think, create flexibility. If you're doing good, efficient, effective auditing of, of the vote count and really of the process as a whole, I think the flexibility of what you can offer, the technology that you can use increases because you're able to offer evidence uh, that the election was secure while offering the, that flexibility. And uh, one thing that was a challenge for us in 2019, we purchased new equipment in St. Louis County. And I went back in the records and our county hadn't purchased voting equipment with county funds since I think like 1973 or four when they bought the punch card system. Because in 05, they had the HAVA funds to buy you know, the, the equipment then to replace punch cards. So I think that's something that's playing out all across the country and funding at, at the local, state, and federal level uh, is going to continue to be a challenge. Without question, it's, you know, a lot of the focus understandably goes on Congress. I, I get the conversation. I, I think it's important. But to the extent that that states and, and localities own elections, and they do, right, constitutionally and otherwise, and they should, we we saw the benefits in this election of that being the case, right? That means that states and localities need to invest in elections, right? And that it's not, you know, you all work more than one day a year. Uh, you run a bunch of elections. You're in many counties, the largest IT operation in the county and should be funded and supported as such. Because what we've seen, and we certainly saw it at CISA, is that investment in the election office is really an investment in county IT as a whole. Uh, it doesn't just go to the elections office. It, it leads to improvements to county networks, to county security, to county IT staffing as a whole. And so uh, state and locals, look, if, if ransomware has taught us nothing else, it's that state and locals have to invest meaningfully invest in IT security in elections and otherwise, or you're just going to keep getting hit and, and it's going to cost you more than if you just invested. But, you know, as I've said, I think in many different environments, 
county commissioners or whoever the funding source, they can take a picture in front of a fire truck. It's really hard to take a picture in front of that server, right? That's just not as good. Maybe if we put the server on the back of the fire truck, uh, we can make it more attractive. I don't know. But we got to, to see that level of investment and support from the state and county level and, and the federal level. But the feds get a lot of the conversation, but the state and locals are the ones that own this thing. The shift from how the states, because I was in the Secretary of State's office in Missouri in 2013, and I remember there being pretty widespread distrust of what the federal government was going to come in and they were going to try to audit our stuff. And that has just completely swung the other way, where people are asking DHS to come in and do this penetration testing and make sure that they are up to speed on everything they need to be. Uh, I know that you talked earlier about all of the conversations that happened at the federal level and that NASAD was there, but how do you think that ultimately filtered down to the local election authorities to be comfortable with that as well? Yeah, it's an awesome question, Brianna. And the trusts that we now have, I mean, CISA works with all 50 states, right? Literally thousands of, of local jurisdictions too, in some form, whether that's just ISAC membership, that's services, that's uh, on-site physical security reviews, which we didn't we didn't talk as much about, but we literally got to thousands of local offices and did physical on-site inspections. Uh, and, and that was important, not just for the security of the, the offices, but to begin to build that trust and relationship, right? That, that uh, our folks weren't just coming in and telling local election officials how to do their job. There's a recognition. We have no idea how to run elections. You all do. But it was a, a given and take about here are some practices if you can't do these. So for instance, you know, the election office has to be uh, accessible. So you can't put huge barriers in front of it. Okay, let's talk about what we can do to secure that. And so I, I think CISA was able to earn the trust by one, respecting the role of the state and locals that you all run elections. We happen to know a little bit about both physical and cybersecurity can help. And then two, providing value. In the end, we're talking about a resource-starved environment where CISA was coming in and providing free support and resources that had some value to the states and to the locals. And so you can it's easier to build trust when you're bringing a support, some service, some information that otherwise doesn't exist and can't, you know, in many places can't be bought or, you know, they can't afford it. That dynamic, that trust is always tense, uh, and rightfully so. I, I always said that the state and locals have a healthy skepticism of CISA, even today, that every day at CISA, we knew we had to renew that trust by providing that value. And if CISA or any other federal entity isn't providing that value, then they're not renewing that trust, and the states and locals are rightfully going to push back and say, you're wasting my time, which I don't have a lot of. It's probably my most valuable resource, and, and you're not providing any help or support. And so our challenge at CISA the whole time was, one, to, to build those relationships, to have you know, that to know who each other was, but two was to provide that, that help, whether it was cyber hygiene scans or just information passed from the ISAC, you build trust by being of value. Election officials are resource limited. And if something saves them time, saves them money or helps them secure the process without them having to spend money for it, that's something that they're going to take advantage of. And that's what we saw in the election community. And, and for us at CISA, the reciprocal part of that is we grew to understand the systems, the people, the processes, and how the election was run, right? The value back to us was we began to understand the unique nature of elections in each one of the states and each one of the localities. Now, moving forward, in order to continue to have that trust and continue to provide that value, 
I think CIS is going to have to recognize what's happened in this 2020 election. Things like rumor control, support around uh, disinfo, combating disinfo are going to be a necessary part of that mission with election officials. We, we've seen it. And then expanding the services so it's scalable. So how do I reach, and I, I frequently use her because she's one of my favorite election officials that I worked with, and it's a perfect example. How do I get Cheryl in Jackson County, Ohio? Cheryl's from a small county, has very little support or resources, no IT support. How do I provide value to Cheryl such that she wants to have that give and take with me at CISA uh, because CISA can't do 8,800 penetration tests. We're not big enough. Uh, There's not enough resources. So how do we continue to move beyond the states down to the localities and, and be scalable enough to do that. And I, we began to do that with some services towards the end of my time. We did something called CrossFeed, uh, which was a, a proactive scan of election networks. So instead of us having to get you to sign and you know take up your time and resources, we're out scanning, looking for vulnerabilities. And if we find something, we could just proactively come to you and say, here's something we found. We can work with you on what mitigation looks like. And that's a more scalable approach right, to begin to build that. So I think that's the challenge ahead. Change in administration always introduces a change in trust. And so the new administration is going to need to prioritize election administration, prioritize the support to election administrators. I I expect that to be the case. I, I don't have any reason to believe it's not, but the proof will be in, you know, the investment of time and energy of support and services down to the state and local officials uh, as a new administration comes in. I think they'll do that. I have every reason to believe they will, but it's going to take that going out and meeting election. I mean, I spent, right, I spent my first two years at CISA on the road at election official conferences because it's the only way to really build that trust and relationship is to go out and meet election officials where they are and say, hey, help me understand what your challenges are. Help me understand your needs. It, it, if we would have just sat back in our offices in D.C., we would have gotten nowhere. It wouldn't have been productive. Well, Matt Masterson, this is why you're a pro, because you've worked a perfect segue into your next role at Stanford. You, you just mentioned big challenges for CISA being you know, messaging and perception and confidence building. I've only read just a little bit about what you're up to next, would you like to, would, would you please explain to everybody what your next venture is and what it's all about? Yeah, super excited. Going to join the team at the Internet Observatory at, at Stanford. Folks like Alex Stamos, who used to be at Facebook, Nate Persilli, who many in the election community know, uh, students and experts around disinfo. And, and my, my two primary pieces of work are going to be around understanding everything we've learned since 2016, but really before that, around election security, election systems, what we could do moving forward, we being the United States as a whole, to support election officials, to support innovation, to Brianna's question from before, to support nimble and effective deployment of systems in order to maintain the security, offer the accessibility and flexibility that election officials need. So that's that's one. Uh, and then two, which is is one that's frankly, a little more interesting to me because it's not something I've worked on as much uh, around disinfo and, and the broader disinfo work. We worked with Stanford and the Internet Observatory and the partnership that they built at CISA to take information from state and local officials around disinfo. And really, they did great analysis around what we see, what's the type of disinfo, what's going on out in the field. So to build on that and look beyond just elections, look at things like vaccines and just the, the environment for disinformation as a whole, I'll, I will say it's near and dear to my heart in that I have a very close friend who has embraced many of the conspiracy theories and having conversations with him over the last year, 
where I'm like, you know what I do for a living, right? Like you understand uh, how closely I work with state and local officials. None of this is true. None of this is correct. Here are the facts. He continued to persist on and, and he remains a very close friend to me. But for someone that is well-educated, runs his own business, not particularly political, by the way, not not really into politics, to go that far down the rabbit hole left me with a question, a burning question of how does this happen? How does someone get drawn into these conspiracies to the point uh, that they're willing to invest their own time, their own money, risk health and safety, storm a capital, consider insurrection? Things like that is, I think, a, a question that all of us as Americans are, are struggling with right now that I am really interested in, in getting to the bottom of and understanding because I think a lot of the conversation is focused on social media, understandably, has focused on the platforms and actions that the platforms take, understandably. But I think there's a larger question about if you think of the platforms as the supply, right, the supply side of this, what's the demand side? They, you know, This wouldn't be out there if there weren't Americans asking for these conspiracies or asking for this information or demanding that there must be another explanation than the one that's in front of them with the facts. And so I think there's a long-term effort needed here in America to really understand how did we get here? How do we begin to do civic education, leadership, engage communities that are targeted with this, including communities of color and low-income communities? We know they're targeted with disinfo a lot as well uh, and, and begin. And there's so many smart people working this issue now. It's, it's exciting to be able to work on it. So, you know, it'll be kind of crazy to work beyond uh, just an election consideration too. That's, that's new for me. So how do you all as election officials, what changes do you all plan to make uh, in response to what we've seen, if any. I mean, maybe the answer is you can't, but so many election officials invested so much time and energy pushing facts out. And I've been asked a lot, like, did it even matter? Did it matter that the facts were pushed out there at all? I believe it did. I believe every chance we have to, to reiterate the facts over and over again will matter, even if it just reaches one person that can you know, spread just as the disinfo spread. But I'd be interested. I, I don't know what your all's view on that is as, as people that have limited resources and time. Well, Mr. Masterson, only we ask the questions here, so. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I've, cro- I've crossed the line now. I've crossed the line. <laughs> I, I think it helped. I think it helped a lot. I mean, in I think there was a lot of dovetailing. What, what our office was working on was voter education. In all of 2019, we were getting new voting equipment, and all I really wanted was good voter education to try to make sure people voted. And yeah. it ended up being kind of a unknown blessing that we had already set up more social media and had created like trusted voices that we were going to be trying to get. We were doing why I vote Wednesdays and having people in the community do a, you know, this is why I vote. And we found all kinds of cool people to push out on social media. So with COVID, I saw a lot of election offices very aggressively and proactively talking about changes to the process or not changes. Like you've always been able to vote this way, know your options. And so like big time public outreach campaigns around how the process worked. And I saw a lot of election officials post-election as the insane conspiracy theories came up using those same channels and that same messaging to, to reassure voters that the process works. So they would say, remember how we talked about you have this option? Well, here's the steps we've always taken to secure vote by mail or the steps we've always taken to secure the voting systems. And so that public outreach aspect that I think a lot of election offices implemented 
because they were either changing or updating processes with COVID, they used that post-election to push, I think, really effective messaging. I, I will tell you for our rumor control site at CISA, we spent a lot of time pulling information, reading information from state and local officials to make sure we got the rumor control right and we linked to the trusted sources of information. I think state and local officials did a really effective job pushing back. And all we hear about is the insane conspiracies. What you don't hear about is the people that got the information they needed and went, okay, I know that my county has this under control and has, I have the information I need and I trust the process, right? And so I, I, election officials yet again stepped up, rose to the occasion and, and responded not just operationally, but communications wise to deal with this. I agree with all that. And I think an, another piece to that, I try to focus on a lot is the in-person aspect of bringing people through the election office and the warehouse. I, I think every member of the state general assembly, that's a Democrat that's from St. Louis County, every elected official, I pr- try to bring them through at least once a year, the democratic central committee. I mean, I, I'm always working toward those things. And I think to a certain degree, obviously that's not reaching a big audience, but I think it has paid dividends to have them be able to come here, touch and feel it, understand exactly what what's behind the curtain. A couple of things on that, though. The, it, one is election officials have for years, but I think more and more are doing exactly what you just described, bringing people in. letting And, and what I've seen as, as a translation to that is, yes, state legislators, I think you raise a good point, but the best reporting I saw on elections around all of these conspiracies was local reporters who have been in the office, have seen the systems tested, have have seen how you all do ballot chain of custody and controls. And so local, and, and that's not that there was some really good national reporting. I don't want to make it sound like there wasn't, but local reporters really dug into that and, and responded back to say, you know, when when some of these insane hearings were happening at the at the state legislature level, you know, literally would put pictures and Twitter threads together of I was just at the Board of Elections. Here's what I saw. Here's what I experienced and how they prepared. And, and that's invaluable uh, at that point. And that's legwork you put in before the election, right? That's not occurring at that point. That, that's the, the level of effort you put in before. And then uh, what has shocked me in this post-election timeframe with these insane conspiracies around the voting equipment and Dominion and Smartmatic and uh, Cytel, individually, I had seen several of these before, dating back to 2005, 2000, these exact same ones. Now, uh, they come back, but they're all synced together and woven together into one large made up conspiracy. And it is it has really blown my mind to see them kind of woven together in that way when I, you, Brianna had experienced them individually throughout time, 2004, 2008, 2018. And so it's it's been a surreal experience to see those raised again in this massive sort of way post this election. It's weird. And scary. And scary, exactly. <laughs> so is uh, what you're doing at Stanford, have they been working on this already or is this kind of a new initiative or what? Yeah, they have. So they they stood up the, the Internet Observatory and then began working on this. And, and specifically for elections, they worked with us at CISA and CIS, the Center for Internet Security, who runs the ISAC, to take reporting in from state and local election officials and do analysis on the reporting that they were getting from state and local officials. So you're going to see some reports out of them, but they were also responding directly back to those officials that were reporting in, offering some analysis. And that's, to me, that was the key. The, the platforms, and we haven't even talked about this, but at, at CISA, we did a lot of work with the platforms. I found that relationship really valuable. The platforms have really 
increase the complexity and skill level they have to take down what's called coordinated and authentic behavior. So when it's like a big coordinating campaign, the platforms are have gotten really skilled at identifying that. But what the election community was missing was analysis around the posts, where they're coming from, what's driving them, how they went viral, things like that. And that's what the academic side through the partnership that Stanford formed with, with folks like Graphica uh, and other universities like the University of Washington were able to provide an analysis. They had a literal ticketing system where they take it in, pump it back out with reporting back to state and local officials. And so it's it's pretty cool. Uh, and the students and, and faculty there did a heck of a job standing it up quickly in response to a need for the election community. Sounds like there's the opportunity for some future partnerships there with Stanford and maybe local election officials? Oh, uh, I think uh, certainly that's my goal. Uh, and I think it, absolutely you're going to see that. I mean, it, it really is going to come down to conversations around, okay, now we've seen what we've seen. How do we pre-bunk or prepare for that to happen again, right? Like, how do we begin to talk to, and it can't fall just on, I mean, I, I've said this publicly at this point, it's now going to fall on local election officials to try to rebuild trust in a process that, by the way, they administered incredibly effectively in the midst of a pandemic and nation state threats to their systems this election. And yet they're going to have to pay the price. You and your colleagues are going to have to pay the price for rebuilding trust again in the process because of made up conspiracies and outlandish claims about the process. And, and there's got to be support provided to you all in, in a number of different ways to do that because it can't, you don't have the time, energy, or resources to do that. It shouldn't fall just on you because you didn't create this. This was, I mean, I don't know what your all's reflections are. In my experience, sitting in the operations center on election day at CISA, connected to literally thousands of local election offices in all 50 states, this was as smooth a presidential election as I've experienced. That doesn't mean there weren't issues. There were, there always are, but it was nothing pervasive, widespread, uh, and local election administrators did a hell of a job administering this election. And then after the election, in, all hell breaks loose because of lies and outlandish claims. Well, I think that's probably a good point to end on. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in today to another episode of High Turnout, Wide Margins. A uh, huge thank you to Matt Masterson for sharing some time with us uh, before he starts his new gig at Stanford. And we hope you all tune in next time for another episode of High Turnout, Wide Margins.